If you do a, a Google search for lists of strong female characters in movies, Aaron Brockovich is going to show up on pretty much every list. Julia Roberts won the Oscar for her powerhouse performance, and she really was able to tap into the strength uh, of this woman who is more than a character in a movie. She's a real-life person, a real woman uh, with real influence. Aaron Brockovich is a leader. And toward the beginning of that scene we just watched, she says to the other sort of more polished female attorney, don't talk to me like I'm an idiot. So it's the summer of Acts at Hope. We're making our way through this book in the Bible uh, that talks about the birth and growth and development of the early church. Today we're going to be taking a look at women who led the early church, which really means we're going to be talking about the role of women in the church today. And I'm going to do my best not to talk to you like you are idiots. We're just going to cut right to the chase. At, at Hope, we believe the Bible uh, teaches and shows us women are in leadership, can be in leadership, can be pastors. Whatever role there is in the church, a woman could fill that role. But of course, there are many Christians and many churches who read the same Bible we read and come to a different conclusion on a topic like this. Well, how can that be? Let's dig into the scripture, and we'll first take a look at some of the things that our hero from the summer of Acts, the Apostle Paul, has to say about this topic. 1 Timothy 2.12, Paul writes, I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. And 1 Corinthians 14, remember the context here, 1 Corinthians 13 is where Paul writes, love is patient, love is kind, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. We love Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, it's where we get our theme for the year, to know and to be known. The very next chapter, women should be silent during the church meetings, it is not proper for them to speak, they should be submissive, just as the law says. Not a whole lot of wiggle room, it seems, in those two verses. Seems pretty clear this is what Scripture teaches on women. Uh, if they're going to lead, it needs to be non-verbally. And so how, how can we at Hope, a, a church that takes the Bible seriously, how can we take the Bible seriously, understanding the Bible has verses like this in it, and come to the conclusion what Scripture teaches on this topic is women can be leaders, women can be pastors, women can be ordained. And sometimes what we do is we point to passages like our Bible reading from Acts 16. Paul and Silas are on this missionary journey. They end up in this city called Philippi. There's a bunch of women on the Sabbath morning gathered for prayer. One of them is Lydia. They begin talking to her, talking to her about Jesus. She becomes a, a believer. And the church in the city of Philippi begins to meet in Lydia's home, we find out later on. And we say, look at that, women can be leaders in the church. Well, what was it that Aaron Brockovich said? Don't talk to me like I'm an idiot. I don't think you have to be very smart to say, well, Lydia could host a worship service in her home and still not teach a man or have authority over them and be silent. So I'm going to talk to you like the really smart people that you are, and we're going to dig into what does the Bible have to say about the role of women and, and women in leadership. So open your Bibles. Genesis chapter 1, we'll start in the very beginning. This is the creation of man and woman. Verse 26, then God said, let us, and remember us, a plural pronoun, we're talking about the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and all the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. 
It's really important, we've talked about this before, that we start with the Trinity. The, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is this dynamic relational community. And there's no hierarchy in the Trinity. It's not like God one, uh, God the second, and God the third. You know, the, the, there's a unity there. And we, human beings, men and women, are created in the image of God. We are intended by God to be this dynamic relational community where we govern for God, we reign for God on this earth in a servant kind of way. And we bring about this redemptive process on earth. It's part of what it means to be created in the image of God. Then you turn the page to Genesis chapter 2, and there's another account of the creation of man and woman. This is verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. And here's where things start to get a little less equal. Because a lot of times, a lot of times as people are reading through it, they're like, oh, a helper for the man. Adam is created first, Eve follows. Adam is the leader, Eve, the woman, is the follower. She's the assistant. She's the one who does whatever the man tells her to do. That's supposed to be a joke. Uh, so, at Hope, we're like, well, that's one way to interpret this verse. But we actually don't think it's the best way to interpret this verse. And it's actually a harmful way to interpret this verse. So let's dig into why do we interpret it the way we interpret it. Well, the key word is this word helper. What does it mean that God gives Adam a helper? The Hebrew word behind the, the word that we translate helper is the Hebrew word azar. It looks like ezer or ezer, but it's pronounced azar. Let's all say that together. Azar. One more time. Azar. And it shows up all over the place in the Old Testament. I want to look at some of the places where this word shows up to give us an idea how the biblical writers, Old Testament biblical writers, use this term. One of the places it shows up is in the Exodus. Moses is leading the people of Israel on their way out of slavery in Egypt. They're headed to the promised land. And remember, it ends up taking about 40 years. And so along the way, at one point, Moses' wife has their second son. And they name him Eliezer, Eleazar. God is my helper. God is my helper. So what is a helper? An assistant, right? So Moses is the leader, and God is Moses' assistant. Moses is the leader, and God is the follower. Moses is the leader, and God does whatever Moses wants God to do. No. <laughs> no. You got... Oh, so, what, what does Moses actually say about this? Why do we name our boy Eleazar? The God of my ancestors was my helper, my Azer. He rescued me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Azer is almost, it's like a military term. And Azer is someone who is strong in battle, able to rescue from the sword of an enemy who's fighting, who's attacking. Uh, Moses uses the word later on at the end of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. He is about ready to die. He gathers the people together before they actually enter the promised land. And he reminds them who God has been, what God has been up to in their lives over these last 40 years. How blessed you are, O Israel. 
Who else is like you, a people saved by the Lord? He is your protecting shield and your triumphant sword. And we don't see the word help there, but it's tucked in behind our translation. In the original Hebrew, it says, He, the Lord God, is the shield of your help. The shield of your help. How does a shield help people in the Old Testament times? It protects them from someone or something that's trying to hurt them, harm them, kill them. Again, it's, this, it's a symbol of strength. It's a term of strength. It's, it's a military kind of term. If we're doing battle, if we're waging war against an enemy, we need an azer. The psalm writers are often places where we go to get a picture of who God is. And one of the favorite ways that the psalm writers like to talk about the character of God is using this term azer. God is our help. Psalm 70 is an example. Please, God, rescue me. Come quickly, Lord, and help me. But as for me, I am poor and needy. Please hurry to my aid, O God. You are my helper and my savior. O Lord, do not delay. In English, we, we rhyme sounds in our poetry. Psalms are songs. It's po- Hebrew poetry. Hebrew po- poetry, they rhyme ideas. So when it says, you are my helper and my savior, it's a rhyming idea. A helper, an azer, is a savior. This is who God is. One more example, and it's actually from a song we sang just a little bit ago, a song we've been singing around Hope for for quite a while now. It's this song called Always, and the the chorus of the song says, Oh my God, he will not delay, my refuge and strength always. I will not fear, his promise is true, my God will come through always. And toward the end of the song, there's a lyric that we just repeat over and over and over. I lift my eyes up, my help comes from the Lord. I lift my eyes up, my help comes from the Lord. It's not just a lyric in a song. It's scripture. It comes right from Psalm 121. And let's read these verses out loud together. Read this with me. I look up to the mountains. Does my help come from there? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. I don't know if you've ever been in the prayer tower, the prayer chapel that we have in this building. When we were designing this space, we wanted to have a place where people could come and have access 24-7 to be able to come to the church and pray. And so uh, we created this tower in the southwest corner, and there's a door on the outside of it. So even if the rest of the building is locked, if it's, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning and you get a phone call that's devastating, and you're like, I just want to go to the church and pray. I just need, I'm working through some things. I need to go to the church and pray. I need to cry out to God. The prayer chapel is open 24-7 for you to be able to do that. Every time I step, as soon as I step into that prayer chapel, prayer tower, immediately I lift my eyes up. It's kind of a small room with a tall, 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 tall ceiling. And your eyes are just drawn upward. And I would like us to paint, someone to climb up there and paint somewhere near the top of that wall. I lift my eyes up, my help comes from the Lord, or Psalm 121, the first two verses. It's a reminder to us. This is who God is. Over and over again, we see this. The way this word azer is used in the Old Testament almost always refers to the character of God. Almost always the word azer describes a helper who is able to save and rescue and deliver, a helper who's able, strong enough to conquer enemies. So in Genesis 2, God gives the man an azer. Why? Because Eden's a dangerous place. 
There's an enemy in Eden at work trying to break apart what God has put together. There's an enemy at work trying to turn allies into adversaries. So God gives Adam the woman as an azer so that together the two of them can fend off the enemy. God needs the woman to be strong. God needs the woman to be fierce. And we almost always interpret Genesis 2.18 as the woman is a helpmate, a passive bystander. And I just want you to understand, the way we interpret Genesis 2.18, it actually is going to color the way we look at other scriptures in the Bible that talk about the role of women. And I'm going to see if I can prove that to you. Uh, Turn into the New Testament, Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, I'll start in verse 38. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed her into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. I need a helpmate. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, if you've been around church world for very long, you've probably heard somebody read that passage, talk about that passage. We often go to it as a reminder to us in our busy world, our busy lives. It's easy to get distracted from the main thing. It's easy to put all of our focus and all of our time and energy on things that aren't really the most important things. And so this is a good reminder to us to refocus our lives. And of of course, that's a big part of what it's talking about. But I want us to dig a little deeper and look a little more closely. Let's look at verse 39 in particular. And it doesn't matter if you're hearing the story for the first time or if you've heard it hundreds of times. Verse 39 says, Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught. And I want everyone in this room to just kind of picture in your mind what does Mary look like? As she's sitting at the Lord's feet listening to what Jesus is teaching, what does she look like? Everybody got kind of that image in your mind? Now, I am going to overstate it. But I think for some of us, the picture we have is kind of teenage girls fawning over Harry Styles, formerly of One Direction. They're starstruck, they're wide-eyed, they're like, oh my goodness, I'm sitting at the feet of Jesus, ah! I said I would overstate it. I want to show you another passage of scripture from our book of the summer, the book of Acts, chapter 22, that's talking about a very similar kind of thing. Paul is on trial for his life, and he's wanting the people who are deciding his fate, he's wanting them to know why they should take him seriously. So he says, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. Paul was trained, he was educated to be a rabbi, to be a Pharisee, by sitting at the feet of his leader, his rabbi, a great man named Gamaliel. And again, I want you to picture in your mind, what does Paul look like as he sits at the feet of Gamaliel? And I'm guessing if we would be honest, we would have to admit, Paul looks very different sitting at the feet of Gamaliel than Mary does sitting at the feet of Jesus. Paul's not starstruck. He's focused. 
He's got a goal. He's being trained to become something. He sits at the feet of Gamaliel so that one day he'll be a rabbi, he'll be a Pharisee, he'll be able to teach the Torah. He understands he's being trained to become a leader in the religious community, so he sits at the feet of someone who's teaching him how to do that. But we hardly ever look at Luke 10. Same guy writes both passages, right? Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke. He's also the author of Acts. He uses this phrase very intentionally. Sitting at the feet is a phrase you always use for someone who is being taught by a master in order to become something. But we never read, we never read Luke 10. Oh, Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus because he's raising her up to be a leader in his movement. But of course he is. I mean, look what Jesus does all through the Gospels. John chapter 4, woman at the well, Samaritan woman at the well. After this conversation that Jesus has with her, she goes off and becomes the first evangelist. She goes off and she proclaims, she preaches to the people in her community the good news of Jesus. And John records in in John chapter 4, many people in her town believed in Jesus because of the sermon she preached. Or there's Luke chapter 8. A lot of times when I read Luke chapter 8, people say to me, I don't remember ever reading that before. Soon afterward, this is Luke 8 verse 1. Soon afterward, Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. He took his 12 disciples with him, along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's business manager, Susanna, and many others who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. So Jesus is on this ministry tour, going from village to village, announcing the good news of the kingdom of God, teaching and preaching. Remember how Jesus does discipleship? He would often demonstrate first and then give his disciples the opportunity to practice it themselves. That's what happens in uh, Luke chapter 9. He sends the 12 disciples out to do that, to preach, to teach, to heal, to announce the good news of the kingdom of God. Then in chapter 10, he sends out 72 other disciples. Who are they? Is it just men, or might it be, in chapter 8, the women who are among that group going with him? Or does Jesus say to the women, hey, I'm happy to cash your checks, but please keep your mouth shut? Does that, does that sound like Jesus? How about the Easter story, the central story of Christianity? How, if we can't trust, if we can't rely on the resurrection actually happening, then everything's just a joke. How do we know Jesus was raised from the dead? First person he appears to as in his resurrected body is a woman, Mary Magdalene, former prostitute. He's had to cast seven demons out of her. Of course, he appears to hundreds of other people later. But the first one, the first witness of the resurrection is this woman. Here's part of what I want you to be thinking about and paying attention to. In a culture where it was actually against the Jewish religious law for women to be taught the Torah, to study the Torah, Jesus invites women to sit at his feet and learn the Torah. In a culture where women, their work was primarily confined to the home, Jesus invites women to go on him, with him on ministry tours, be ministry partners with him. 
in a culture where women were considered unreliable witnesses. If you had to go to court and your best witness was a woman, you just wouldn't go to court. Nobody believed the testimony of a woman, but Jesus uses the testimony of women time and time again to advance his good news, his kingdom on this earth. Culture is a real powerful thing. And time and again, what we see Jesus doing, particularly with women, but in all sorts of ways, he crosses over what has been kind of established as this is what culture says, and Jesus breaks through those, or he doesn't pay attention to them, in order to establish a new cultural reality, a new community, a new kingdom. Well, Pastor Scott, what about what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy? Okay, this is very cultural. Timothy was a young pastor in a city called Ephesus, learning how to be a pastor in that community. And we're going to read about this in a couple of weeks in Acts chapter 19. The city of Ephesus, the primary worship before Christianity got there, was the cult of Artemis. Artemis is a goddess, Greek goddess, Roman goddess, Diana, same thing. And the, the cult of Artemis in Ephesus when Timothy was there was led by women. The women were the priests, the women ran the whole thing. That was the primary worship. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, don't just assume that these women who've been leading this are now going to lead the church. We need to move from unhealthy female leadership to healthy female leadership, and it's going to take time. So he says, let them learn quietly. And the word for learn quietly is kind of give them leisure time. Think about Mary and Martha in Luke 10. Martha had no leisure time, but Mary did. She sat at Jesus' feet and learned and was taught so that she could lead. And 1 Timothy is all about giving these women in Ephesus time to learn the whole Jesus thing before they become leaders. 1 Corinthians, where Paul says women should be silent in worship, three chapters earlier, 1 Corinthians 11, he says, when women are talking in worship, here's what they should be wearing on their heads. So what do you do? You don't look at those two as your primary sources for what's the role of women. You look at the entire context of Scripture, you realize that sometimes uh, the writers of Scripture are talking about specific instances, specific circumstances. They're not making a declaration for all time in all churches everywhere. So what does it mean for us? It means you and I have been invited by Jesus to create this kingdom culture where men and women are free to use whatever gift God has given them for the sake of building the church, the kingdom of God. And we've come a long way. There's a sociologist named Rodney Stark. He writes a book called The Rise of Christianity. He says primarily, not primarily, one of the huge reasons why Christianity grew and spread was because of the new way that women were viewed and treated and valued in Christianity. We've come a long way, but we've got a long way to go. I mean, think about it. A hundred years ago, most of the women in this room could not vote in this country. Unless you owned land or were married to a man who owned land, you wouldn't get to vote. We've got a long way to go. But I think about people like Sophie Bergen. Last week she got up and she influenced and inspired a bunch of you to write cards, notes to children in Africa to give them hope and encouragement. And I, I think about Vacation Bible School that's starting tomorrow and thousands of kids are going to be coming through the doors of this church every day this week, primarily because of the leadership capability of Women who are on staff and who are volunteering in this church, men are serving as well. But I'm just telling you, the women are leading this thing. And it's one of the best things that we do as a church. 
And I think about the mission trip I took last fall to South Africa with a group of men and women. One of the women, Jenny Shirley, she's going back this October, uh, the 19th through the 31st. She's leading the team this time. And I would hope some of you would want to go and be a part of that. There's going to be a, an information meeting next Saturday, the 29th of July at Porchlight Coffee House in Uptown Ankeny. If you want to get more information about that, that trip, Jenny would love for you to come and hear all about it. I think about the women who I sit in my office with as they're in leadership positions out in the community. Uh, business, medicine, finance, schools, homes. They're doing all kinds of leading out there and still there are Christians in churches that say, you can lead out there, you just can't lead in the church. And I start to take it personally. Uh, our five oldest kids have all been homeschooled as part of their um, education. And homeschool circles are often kind of these conservative Christian kind of realms. And so one day, my daughter came home. It turns out you can homeschool and not be at home. And she was going to this uh, thing where they had classes together with groups of kids. And, and she comes back and she says, so dad, at the end of class today, we were going to pray, but one of the boys in my group said, oh no, the girls can't pray. Not when there's a boy in the group. That's what the Bible says. And she said, is that really what the Bible says? Is that really what we believe? And so I sat her down, and we, we talked about this stuff, and she went back and blasted that jerk. No. <laughs> no, she did not. No, she did not. But I just want... It's so easy to take passages out of context. And we have to do the hard work of digging in. What, what is Scripture really saying? So that we can be the kind of community that Jesus wants us to be for the sake of the world. I hope we take it personally. It's not just, are we talking theology? Are we talking doctrine? It's, it's never just an intellectual pursuit when we do that. It impacts real people in real ways. Erin Brockovich was taking it personally um, toward the end of this movie. She's pouring out her life trying to help this class action lawsuit where people are dying and She's just exhausted. She shows up to work one day, and all the other lawyers are already there meeting and planning and strategizing, and they have not included her. And she takes it personally. Take a look. So women of hope and men of hope, we need you. This church needs you. We need you to serve. We need you to give. We need you to worship. We need you to show up. We need you to stand up. And we need you to take it personally. Anytime you see someone created in the image of God being treated as a second-class citizen, there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And God wants us to be a part of creating this whole new kind of culture. And you look at the way women continue to be mistreated in our culture, and you see we've got work to do. And we can't do it on our own. None of us are good. We're, we're part of this broken system, this broken culture. So what we really need is God to give us new life, to breathe his life into us. So let's stand together and let's sing this last song as a prayer for God to do just that.